my favorite, favorite new thing that I saw the other day at a farm was they had a pile of dirt and they hid three coins in it. And if you found a coin, you got a little prize that you could go turn. There was a wait at the front gate of 20 parents who were going to have their child go dig into this pile of dirt to find the three coins that they could go get a little prize for. Where can you do that in the U.S.? Welcome to Winning at Work, the podcast for foodies, founders, and food and beverage professionals. You know, if you wanted to discover a new brand, a new food or beverage to try, there are literally thousands of companies out there. It is very difficult to do that. That's why we curate the different, the better, and the special brands here each and every week so you don't have to do the heavy lifting. If you're a founder and you're looking to connect with other like-minded executives, we make that very easy. And if you just work in the food and beverage industry and you're looking for fresh inspiration, we have that here in spades. This episode is sponsored by Temple. Congratulations, you're selling in retail. But the competition is fierce and your brand is surrounded by similar products. How will consumers find you? Let Temple show you an innovative retail sales solution. Click on the Attract Consumers link below. Need to attract great employees? Click on the Hire Now below and we'll show you how to use your culture to help you stand out. Stay tuned for this week's episode. Welcome to Winning at Work, everybody. It's Tony. Uh, Today, we're going to learn about agritourism or agritainment, as it has been known. It's um, basically it's experiential travel and dining. You know, I think of all the farms that are out there, some of them are struggling to compete against the big commercial farms. So what's an interesting farm to do? It's, you know, it's got all the beautiful livestock and scenery. Well, you open up a, a food and beverage operation and who better to talk to us about it than uh, Michael Holtzman. He's the uh, president. He's a CEO of Profitable Food Facilities Worldwide. Uh, the best way to think of them is they really specialize in designing that captive market food and beverage operation. So if you've never heard that phrase, you know, captive market, just think about you're at a football game, you're at an amusement park or a hotel or a convention center. You really don't leave the premise. You're on premise and you have to find your food there. And Mike and his team uh, for over 30 years and hundreds and hundreds of uh, solutions solved, you know, worldwide, absolutely perfect person to talk to us about agritourism and why it's such a trending space. How's it going, Mike? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Tony. How are you? This is uh, this is exciting. I'm, I'm really glad that we get to share this and and get into this because, you know, this agritourism thing is like, we know, I didn't even know what the term was five years ago. I'm like, what, what's that? You know, when I ran into my, my first, uh, uh, group that we got to work with on this and, and, um, he's all, yeah, you know, I've got a, I've got a farm in Omaha, Nebraska. And I'm like, okay. And I was literally going, am I going to price this right? Because I don't even know how much they're going to do. <laughs> Turned right. out he was number one farm in the United States. And, and he didn't share that with me until I get out there. And I'm like, what is this? And so the number one farm is Vallas in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And they have 22,000 people show up on a Saturday. 
It's just half of Disneyland. 22,000 people. Oh, yeah. So, so how many acres does he have? He's got about 300 or so, you know, and he's got, I mean, he's, this is the most innovative person in the industry. It was kind of like set a standard. It was like, well, I'm never going to be like Valas. You know, well, you don't have to be like Valas. And that's part of the thing that's neat to see across all these farms, you know. So that was my first. And when we worked with them, then I'm like, the, now we've done over 50 of them. You know, we worked with 50 farms. So I've been to 50 farms in the last five years, you know, seeing them all laid out and how they do this. And I the, love it. Yeah. So it's pretty. I exciting. can't wait. Honestly, I can't wait for this. So, Mike, you had a bit of a funny story. So we were all ready to go today. And you had your laptop ready to go and you had a, an attack. What happened? Yeah. You know, you know, people say that the, the dog ate my homework. Well, my cat knocked over two ounces of liquid right onto my laptop and uh, shorted out. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, Mike. I should not laugh, but that's what cats do. They're so annoying like they, that. Have you seen The Secret Life? Of I cats? think they know they're, they're evil. It's just crazy. Oh, the movie? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, exactly. So so we so we've called an audible. You're 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 calling in mobile. So, you know, bear with us. You know, the quality is going to be good. It may not be laptop, but it's going to be good. So you've been working on 50 farms. So how did you actually get involved from the beginning in agritourism? What was the what was the genesis of this for you, Mike? Well, as you mentioned, you know, the whole captive market piece and, and my, my most favorite description of captive market is when you walk into a movie theater, you walk into a movie theater and you walk up to the concession stand and you're like, oh, I just want some popcorn and a soda. And you look at the price, it's like $8 for the popcorn and it's $7 for the soda. And if you combine them and get a combo meal, it's, you know, instead of $15, it's fourteen seventy-five. Right. And and then you go and sit down and the average consumer finishes their popcorn and soda in 12 minutes into the movie. <laughs> so but you just spent fifteen dollars and then you go to 7-Eleven. <laughs> they just raised the price of soda from ninety nine cents to a dollar twenty nine. How can they do that? You know, and so to me, a little bit of captive market. There's a lot of things that I learned from that. Number one, you don't have to price things. You know, you can price things a little bit higher. Right. Than you would. And when you're in a environment of something specialty where it takes a lot of hassle for me to get you a Coke, you know, then I can charge you a little bit more. And the other thing is I'm seasonal. I'm a short period of time. I only have a certain window to earn my revenue. So things have to be really strategically planned for that to maximize your opportunity with that from the, you know, from the financial side of operating and then to the guest experience so that they'll return. So kind of a neat little niche of this. And that's that we, we kind of ran into this, you know, five years ago, I spoke at a conference for it and, and, um, and then, you know, got to, got to meet the, the number one tourism, agritourism site, um, and got to go work with them and just see the challenges of like, they have 28 food outlets, Tony, 28, you know? So when Wait, three, on the farm, yes, on this farm, there's 28 different food outlets that they operate. Um, because of the thousands and thousands of people that come to this particular location. Um, and you know, they're, so they're, so when you got, don't have napkins and spoons and forks and I got to go run those out to you, then I've got a, I've got 28 outlets that need three things. I'm making 78, you know, 84 runs to go bring product out, um, you know, on a busy day. Like, so the operations stuff behind and seeing how it goes. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned with this when, and what studying Disney is that Disneyland, uh, 
he was really disappointed with how that Walt was really disappointed with how it came out because all the food had to cross the park. Right. And what he learned is he went underground at Disney world so that he could hide that, you know, so that you could go underground with it. So you don't see product moving across in Disney world, but you still see it at Disneyland. So, well, he put his, you know, commissary spot in just a wrong location. And so everything has to be run so far. So for us, it's like planning these things is important, mm. you know, from a food standpoint to be able to execute so that it's seamless. And what you get as an experience, you don't see, you know, crossing your paths, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, if you could hide it, it's kind of like hiding the um, the utilities coming to your home. You know, you just don't need to see it. So you've already touched on it. So continue with this. I want to know what are some more of the really unique challenges when you're trying to integrate, you know, a food and beverage experience on a farm? Just walk us through kind of high level. What are the issues? Let me first kind of hit with the biggest issue of all with farming in general. I, and this is just learning from them themselves. So here I met with a client, a client who has you know, this gorgeous farm and 100, 120 acres and, and, but they're struggling and they're struggling because when they go produce a lug of tomatoes, right. And a lug of tomatoes, 18 pounds, they wholesale that for $4 a lug. Do you know how many lugs of tomatoes you have to make to make up for the dollars that you can make to be in a farm? Like it's just the, the, wholesale cost of things when it gets to retail is up and up every, you know, trucking and shipping and, you know, delivering, and then everybody needs to make their money on it. So your $4 a lug turns to $4 a pound by the time you get to the store, if it's high end tomatoes. Well, what they discovered is like, why don't I just open a store and take my lug of tomatoes and dump it on a, on a center Island. And now I can sell my tomatoes for $4 a pound. And if I lose 10 pounds of them, I'm way ahead than selling it for a lug. So this is an outlet for them to actually survive. Without agritourism, many of these farms are going to be forced to close or sell their land out, and we're not going to have any farms left, you know, across the country. And we don't don't seem to worry about that, but long-term sustainability of this country is going to be based on farming at some level, you know. And unless you want it all done in a greenhouse with it's all weirded light, not natural, um, which is how a lot of the food's being done. This is the, their sector of how they survive. For them to do these six weeks of agritourism allows them to farm year-round. So it's really neat to see that I can be a part of keeping that sustainability model because the struggle is that I'm a farmer and what I know, what do I know about restaurants besides eating at them? How do I set up an outlet where 500 people come and want lunch all at the same time? How do I feed that? Because if you go to the perfect McDonald's, right, right the drive-through takes how long? If they could get a car through in two minutes, they're jazzed, right? Well, guess what? That's 30 cars an hour and maybe 100 orders. I've got 500 people at the farm or 5,000 people at the farm divided between my outlets. How do I move those people quick enough so that you don't go and go long lines, 45-minute waits, all the things were too hard. We came once, we did it, let's go home. Instead of, wow, what a great day. That food was exceptional. What an experience. Let's come back and bring the family again and again and make it a historical, you know, picture of my kid at six with my picture of my kid at seven with my picture of my kid at eight. And it turns into a generational thing. So it's kind of neat to be seeing it not only just from a food and beverage standpoint, but from a sustainability piece of what farming is all about, you know, so being a part of that is really exciting. Mike, are you finding that you've got farms that want to do the seasonality and farms that want to open up like a like a retail shop in the front. I'm thinking of a place in Blue Ridge. So many people 
that are listening, they have at the, if if they've ever gone through Georgia, they know about North Georgia. There's a, a really cute town. It's gotten a little commercial just because so many people love to go to it. It's called Blue Ridge. And just outside of town, there is a huge orchard. It's called Mercier Farms. And Mercier, they do all the you pick. You can go all different times of the year, you know, and do your strawberries and your apples. And But at the front of the property, they've, they've built a, a retail outlet, basically, where they've they're serving food, they've got, you know, bakery goods and local and what they've done is they've started bringing in other local brands too. So, you know, local barbecues and sauces and so on. So, they bring a lot of people in. Are you finding that you're that these farms are wanting to do just the the seasonal and then shut it down or are they also wanting to try to open up that that front of the house look too? There's a combination of it because some of them don't want to necessarily work year round, you know, so there's, there's that aspect to it. Um, I mean, there's always the thing about going to the, to the unique produce place, right? That, that little corner market that I can get things there that I can't get at other places. Like, you know, that when they bring in one of the place farms we worked with in Indiana was, a you know, an apple farm designed around cider and they, the, the processing of what it takes to make a gallon of cider is crazy. You know, what the whole, how you squish the apples and get the pulp right and the flavorings and then filling the, they were literally filling the bottles by hand with three people. One person would unscrew the cap. One person would go over and fill the gallon jug. One person would put the cap back on and seal it and stamp it. I mean, it was that, you know, old school of what they were doing on the farm to produce thousands of gallons. They would go through 865 gallons a day in season, you know, of their, of their, of their juice, of their uh, cider. It was so specialty. And what we were coaching them on is like, they're selling it for $8 a gallon. And I'm like, you guys are going through all this process, like charge 10. <laughs> it's okay. You know, that's the education that we right. get. It's like the green light of an outside perspective, a little bit of looking at it from a little bit different business angle about, look, you guys, you're all, you, you can lose that crop. And they're like, yeah, we did last year. We lost our whole apple crop because it froze. I'm like, so, I mean, this is a great year, but you, no consumer is going to go, oh, that apple cider is $10 instead of eight. I'm leaving. Like it's hand pressed. This is awesome. You know, taste it. You'll never, you'll never buy any other cider again because it's nothing like theirs. It's that good. You know, so back to your question about opening a store, they're opening a store. And in fact, what they have to do is make the store bigger because when it comes to the fall and 70% of the people come in that six weeks, the other 30% come in the other, you know, 46 weeks. And so they have to build that business. And that takes a longer period of time to make that a, you know, where you, you're going to change your habit of shopping once there a week there instead of going to, you know, Walmart or some other place to get your groceries. So it takes a little longer to build those. But yeah, we're seeing farms doing that. We're seeing farms getting into their own, mixing their own ciders, you know, making their own hard cider as well. Um, so there's lots of different outlets that they're, that they're looking into with this. And, but there's is enough revenue in that six weeks because when most of these farms go in, they grow exponentially. They don't just go up 3% a year. They go from 5,000 to 10,000 to 25,000 to 30,000, you know, over a four year span. Um, and that's where food gets difficult because you went from, it's so funny, Tony, we walk into some of the farms like, you guys are doing crock pot hot dogs. Like, yeah, we just put it in this crock pot and heat them up. And I'm like, okay, that's going to work until you get to this magic number of more people. We need to reset your operations, you know, so we get to educate on 
how you build a commissary and commissary is central district to distribute the products to these different outlets. What outlet should you have first? What's the next outlet you should have? We've designed an outlet, Tony, that can do 9,000 an hour, 9,000 an hour with fresh products right? It's a fresh grill concept. And so we've introduced this to a lot of farms and they're, and once they get it, because it's nothing that you see out there, there's no chain doing it that way. No one's doing what we do and what we educate on. And, but it's not difficult once you know, you know, once you get the McDonald's manual on anything, <laughs> it's, it's easy. Um, but teaching people how to do that. Yeah, then you can replicate it. Exactly. That they, and that they can be successful with it. That's the other thing. You don't need a rocket scientist to run this, right? You just need the plan. Well, you know what what comes to my mind is that you've got, you know, farmers who are obviously very good at at cultivating their crops, etc., but to get into the food business, they may not have come from it, right? And that's where you come in to help them with it, but why not just get involved in a collaboration? Why not just get involved in a partnership? I mean, if if I had that kind of land, and people wanted to come and, you know, be part of the landscape and just kind of be out in nature. Why not just like partner with like, with like a local chef or like a small local restaurant? Here's the challenge with that. It's the volume that these that these farms are starting to generate where we can't just do a onesie twosie or sub with when a chef comes in with his talent. Right. And their and their knowledge base. Um, and we run into this like with our with our country club sector. Right. Private clubs fantastic chefs, best parties, right? All the events are awesome, but they struggle with a la carte. Why are they struggling making, making hamburgers, you know, and, 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 uh, club sandwiches for their members? Cause that's not where they came from. Their background was hotel and, and, you know, and that aspect of it. So they never got to work at TGI Fridays. In fact, I'm insulting them when I say that, did you ever work at a chain? They're like, God, no, I've never do that as a chef. Well, that's why they don't do well with a la carte. So in farm, the struggle is your numbers. We are literally talking about, you know, the, we, we got to manage an agritourism farm for two seasons. So what I did when we kind of slowed down during COVID is we approached some farms and said, can we manage this for you? And what it allowed us to do is try our concepts and see how they work, right? How does the pizza concept work? How does the grill concept work? How do we do these? And got to live it. So then we're not just talking about it. We actually went through it of what it was like to have a Columbus Day weekend and 151000 in revenue, 72000 in one day and six hours, right? That's, that's the equivalent of, a, you know, two weeks of chilies. And we're doing that in a day. So it's learning that the, a chef doesn't come in with that knowledge. Now, I can teach them it. Right. It's not it's not hard once you understand it, but you got to learn that. And so that's why if, like when they bring in food trucks, we take we recommend many times to take the food trucks out back to how many orders can you process per hour? Let's say, again, 30 an hour and you're a food truck. And I got 300 people on my farm that are hungry for lunch right now. It's going to take me 10 hours to feed them. I need a different concept. Right. Than that. I'm so glad you said that, Mike, because I was just thinking, why not just bring in food trucks? But you're, it's, a, it's a volume. It's a volume problem. So the trick then for you and for the farm is to figure out, OK, what concepts can we put on the farm and use our farm products? Right. Because why would I go to a farm and get a pizza if it's not, you know, dairy from the farm, if it's not fresh tomatoes from the farm? Am I right? Yeah, you're trying to tie that in. Absolutely. The, the, 
and still get the, you know, the results of <clears throat> if you do apples, maybe you're putting an apple butter, you know, on, in some of the products or the best one, of course, is cider and making them into slushies. I mean, you literally can take the gallon of cider, pour it into a slushy machine with the right machines and have a fresh, phenomenal product. And then, you know, from the financial sense of, okay, I take a gallon of cider that cost me $4. I pour that into a slushy machine and I'm selling 12 ounce slushies for $5.95. I'm now making $70 a gallon, right? So that type of education for them, they're like, oh, okay. And cider slushy is healthy, right? It's popular. It's something that people want to have on a farm. It's kind of like hard cider, same idea. We get this, like people say, Mike, I'm a, I'm a guy and I don't like cider. I go, would you walk, Tony, would you walk into a bar and order a cider? Would that be the first thing you would order? Probably not, Right. But if I go, <laughs> the answer Tony, is no, <laughs> the answer is no. But Tony, you have a choice today. You can have a hard cider or you can have nothing. Choose. So for today, Tony, you might have a cider. <laughs> I hard might cider get, it is. Hard cider it is, right? And that's the other secret to captive markets. You don't have to have 17 brands of beer on a farm. You need one or two max, right? That's all you serve because I have 500 people. I've got to move them through my line. I can't sit there and say, what beer should I get today? No, that's not good. That doesn't help me when I'm trying to take care of all these guests. So it's kind of a fine line between, you know, execution when you get busy, keeping up with the quality. And that's the big thing that we educate around, Tony, is that, you know, where food is going today and um, we could do a whole nother podcast on that. Um, you know, what's going on with chicken? What's going on with beef? What's going on with a lot of things that, that are, you know, are frankly scary um, that's going on with our food. Oh, Mike, we, we absolutely, <laughs> listen, Mike, we absolutely, we will absolutely have you back because there's much more for us to talk about. And with you just being on your cell phone, your your reception has been decent you know it's not coming through great so i think i think we are definitely wetting the whistles of everyone to you know kind of dive into this this topic definitely more and i think you've got to have um the challenge obviously just with all the licensing and regulations you have to deal with all that so yeah i think i'd want to outsource it from myself you know if i'm a <laughs> farmer well and and here's the thing on the other side though so when when we came in to manage that farm they were doing three dollar per cap so for $3, for every person that came in, say they had 5,000 people that day, they would average $3, so they would have 15,000 in revenue. The season we came in, first season, we took them from $3 to $11. So they went, and they had 50,000 people for the season. So they went from, you know, two or 300,000 to six or 700,000. And now that farm is doing over a million in revenue in six weeks by taking our concepts of fresh quality food served fast right? And integrating that into their farm. So it's neat to see that the, we're, we're not just dropping in saying, hey, you're going to make a few more dollars. No, you can make a million dollars if you work with us, you know, and, and making that that it's quality product. That's the big, big thing is not not frozen, but really staying in the fresh world as farms are in a fresh world. So Mike, what what would it take from a like a financial investment? And I know it's going to depend. I know there's always it always depends depends. But for a farm that has never done agritourism and they want to start, what kind of capital? What's the kind of entry point to even get started? You think we got to do this with a farm actually last month? 
Um, we had someone who reached out and said, you have a lot of experience with farms. You've seen more farms in five years than anybody else we know. Who's seen 50 farms in five years, right? And then I get to go take the best of what those do and put them on paper for how to lay this out to maximize their, their revenue piece. So the number is around probably a seven digit number. You know, it, it, I mean, when someone said, I want to start my agritourism, I said, it's going to probably be a million dollars to get started. But your ROI is so quickly, you know, that it that it's can you've got to just make that initial investment. And the only other part is marketing, right? That people know that your farm is off Highway 82 and in, in, you know, the middle of Nowheresville. And how do they find you? And when I drove out to Vallas, that number one farm that I was with, and it was like, where am I? You know, but you could see that the parking lot was enough cars for, you know, three, three cars per person, they could park 7,000 cars and one acre parks a hundred cars. So do the math, you know, they need 70 acres just for parking, right. To be able to do this at, you know, the top farm in the country. So that is crazy, Mike, that is such a huge operation. I'm just, I'm blown away by that. So outside of food, what are some of the fun things that you've seen on these farms for the consumer? They, uh, I mean, that's where the creativity comes in, where each farm has its own little unique touch, you know, what's the, what's the, uh, go-to memorable slide that you're on, or what's the playground that they have. That's not just a standard playground, but it's integrated into, you know, a whole farm experience where someone really designed it, you know, from that perspective, because it's leaving that child image, right? It's where your child goes, remember, you remember going to the farm when you were six or seven and then you're eight or nine and, you know, almost like Disney, but in a lower keel. Here's what I try and say with attractions is I always say to the farm, I go, you know, if you compare yourself to Disneyland, how, what do you think you, you are? Are you 20% of a Disneyland experience, 30%, you know, and basically everybody fell, fills into this 20 to 30% range. And I look at them and I go, so if you're 20% of Disney and Disney charges 200 a day, you should be charging $40 for entry and you're charging 12, right? And so, but getting into go be, my favorite, favorite new thing that I saw the other day at a farm was they had a pile of dirt and they hid three coins in it. And if you found a coin, you got a little prize that you could go turn. There was a wait at the front gate of 20 (laughs) parents who were going to have their child go dig into this pile of dirt to find the three coins <laughs> that they could go get a little prize for. Where can you do that in the U.S.? That's hysterical. Nowhere but a farm. That's hysterical. <laughs> so, right? It's perfect. You know, what? How, how genius is that? Okay, well, let's let's uh, mound the dirt back up. Exactly. You know, reset, the, reset it, you know, shovel it back together. Oh, and then on the on their big day, like hysterical. in September, watch in, their, in their slow day in September, they they up the prize to you know five five dollars off, um, you know something in retail, and that's where it really gets crazy that all these people come out to try to find those coins. So it's pretty amazing. Well, and I think what's what's great from the marketing standpoint is that you've got all this beautiful nature that you can use to promote your farm, to promote whatever it is that you're doing. And you just have to invest in social media. And I would think once people start going, the pictures they're taking, you know, it kind of snowballs, I would think. Um, Absolutely. 
Have you, do, do y'all help with, uh, do, do, do y'all help with like marketing strategies or do these farms kind of figure that out on it's, their own? It's kind of a combination. I mean, now that, so agritourism is new. I mean, in relative terms, this industry is only about 20 years old, you know? So it's, it's, and it's growing in like leaps and bounds, but no one's really sure what to do because you used to do it as a pumpkin patch. I would grow, grow pumpkins. People would come to my pumpkin place, right? This is the, the my first farm is we went out to a pumpkin patch. It had, they had pumpkins out there. We took our wheelbarrow out with our five and our seven-year-old. We grabbed a pumpkin. We weighed it. We paid for it. They had one country store and one, and one food truck, right? That is not what agritourism is now. It's a whole nother ball game with jumping pillows and, and even haunted, you know, their nighttime haunts and all these things that are, that are being integrated because yes. there's daytime stuff, right? And then there's the nighttime stuff. And, so we're doing the Facebook marketing to the families. But, you know, as my daughter was working with me, she's 22 and she's like, you guys aren't marketing to me. And we spend a lot of money, our generation of 20 some odds, right? So make sure you market to them as well. And that's where the hard cider became an important addition to the farm to have that. You know, there's a lot of people that go to Disneyland that don't ride on rides that have season passes because they just walk around and eat at Epcot and have all the food and they don't care about riding on the rides. It's just being in the experience, just like being at a farm, right? Same idea. So if, it, if it's just having that, that pumpkin experience, you know, is part of it, but pumpkins are now like number nine in the revenue stream. And what we've been able to show them is food and beverage can be number two after attendance, you know, so that's what we've been able to show with the, with the quality of the products and the things they do. It's not just kettle corn anymore, right? There's much more that you can do than just that to get that experiential food as part of your farm experience so that people do come back. What would you say would be the smallest acreage footprint that you think you could do something successfully? I know that's probably depends on a lot of things, but what do you think? We, we I mean, there are, look, there's places that we, we were driving by, um, I'm out here in Oklahoma and we were driving to Branson, Missouri the other day and we saw pumpkins in the pines and they probably had four acres and they had all these pumpkins laid out in these pine trees, which is just beautiful, right? A neat place to just walk with your child and pick a pumpkin. So they did it in four acres, but it's not what a, what we would call a, you know, a Piagra Tours and pumpkin patches. The big one, Tony, is parking right? That you have to have that acre for every hundred cars. Yeah. And so if you're going to get to a thousand or 2000 or 5,000 people, then that really bumps your acreage, you know, to 30 or 40 acres for that alone. Um, so that's why we usually say a hundred acres is, is kind of the minimum hundred to 140 is what I've been coached on. Um, so that you can get everything in because it's, it's difficult to make money in a, in an agritourism. There's a breaking point like anything, right? Where's the break even? And if you're only at 500 yes. people that day, even though that sounds like a lot, when all you throw in all your all your labor and everything else, that's not enough. So they need to get to that thousand mark, you know, to make this worthwhile. And so that's where that seven digit, right? Simple seven digit number, one million with 150 acres is kind of where we would, we, we kind of coach and say, that's where I would start with. Um, but the good news is your ROI can be literally within um, a few years and we can ROI food concepts seasonally within the first two weeks of them being open. That's when we've been able to do with a lot of the food and beverage. Um, that for anyone who just might, might want to, you know, contact you and figure out ways to really kind of streamline their operations in whatever captive market they're in. What's the best way for people to connect with you and, and, and your team? 
Yeah, our website is profitablefood.com. Um, and my personal email is mike at profitablefood.com. Um, but yeah, we are, look, one of the big things that I love is just education and just taking on something like this where we just get to educate and show people about, you know, to set them up for success. So we always say reach out and just, you know, let's have a conversation and see what, what you've got. And if there's a way that we can support you, that's how I built this, you know, concept all my life is about educating first and then hey, if you need a little bit more help with that and take it to the next level, our fees are going to get paid for in a couple of weeks once we show you how to do stuff, you know? So we make people millions, Tony. It's a lot of fun. I tell you what, listen, what we're going to do, the next time you go to a farm that you know you're going to have good cell phone reception there, yep. let's do a live stream. Okay. I That'd would love fun. to see it. I'd be, I think it'd be a lot of fun. We can kind of see, kind of see behind the scenes. Mike, great talking to you again, and thank you for taking us on a kind of a uh, a whirlwind tour of agritourism. And appreciate you coming down to uh, winning at work and talking to us. Absolutely, thanks for the time, Tony. It's been great. <laughs>